Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Very soon, enhanced child cash benefits will be hitting parents' bank accounts. This is going to be starting on July 15th. The IRS will send families monthly payments of $250 to $300 per child to families depending on their ages and incomes of the parents. The Biden administration says this is an important step in stamping out child poverty and are hoping to extend this program to 2025. They estimate that households representing more than 65 million children or 88% of all U.S. kids nationwide will be getting this benefit through direct deposit, paper checks, or debit cards. For more on these new monthly payments, we'll speak to Jeff Stein, White House economics reporter at The Washington Post. So I think some useful context for people to understand when they learn about this proposal is that for really um, years, I mean, even decades at this point, America has been an exceptional outlier in how skimpy its benefits are uh, for parents, particularly for parents of young children. We have in this country, despite obviously being you know, among the richest, most powerful nations in the world, really the highest or really among the highest um, rates of child poverty anywhere. And that, you know, many academics and experts say is the direct result of how little we give to parents when they um, have kids. And so as a result, there's been a large push over years that the Democrats have been calling for, and even some Republicans have been calling for to say, let's give some money for parents to help them get through this period where people face huge costs with kids. And you know, if there's any sympathetic population, it's children that shouldn't be through poverty because their parents don't have any money. And so um, we'll be seeing this money start to hit people's bank accounts on July 15th. And the goal is to sort of end this national embarrassment of high rates of child poverty. Now, this is an extension of the $2,000 per child tax credit that most families would get already. You know, they'd be getting it at the end of the year when they do their taxes and all. But this is different now. They're spreading it out monthly to help, as you mentioned, to your point, to help those families that are having a tough time month to month. That's correct. And, you know, in some ways, as important as that is, you know, the monthly change, what may be even more important, and this is a little weedsy, but what's really important here is that they're changing the structure of the payment so it no longer excludes the very poorest families. The conception of the child tax credit when first implemented and as it currently exists is that families, or as it existed before this period, um, before Biden's law uh, was signed in March, families who do not earn enough money to offset their tax obligation are not eligible for the payment. So that means if you have no money, you no income, and do not receive money from your employer uh, at a certain level, then you actually do not benefit from this at all. What Biden and the Democrats did was change that. So families, even with no income, receive the full benefit. And that's where the sort of the big anti-poverty impact comes from. There are many Republicans who are saying giving money directly to families who are not working is going to be dangerous because it will encourage those families to stay at home and not work. That has been an argument that Democrats were even persuaded by for decades. But now we're seeing a big shift and Biden really leaning into that. And they're launching on this plan that will not require Americans to have a certain level of income to qualify for these anti-poverty programs. Yeah, I mean, there was kind of a change during the pandemic, even with those stimulus payments, where it was just these 
direct cash payments to everybody. So this is kind of an offshoot, if you will, of that. The Biden administration wants to extend this to 2025 in their American families plan. So that's kind of the goal there. But who knows if we'll get there, right? So right now, so far, this program just is for this year only. That's right. And, you know, it's been interesting because the White House keeps saying that their plan will have child poverty. Some experts are skeptical that that is the case, but it would be really quite stunning if they are unable to extend this for next year, given that they have have celebrated that stat. Um, If this is allowed to expire, whatever anti-poverty impact it will get from this year will um, be reversed next year. And I can't imagine the administration would be very happy to see that. Republican support is not really there for something like this. And even when it was passed the first time, it was passed without them. Uh, you know, it was just passed but with Democratic support only. So this will be another hurdle that they'll have to overcome when it comes to extending this uh, at all. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, it, it seems unlikely at this point that Republicans are willing to um, really go to the mat. I mean, there, there is opposition this among Republicans, but a lot of people in Washington think that, you know, with enough tax cuts or tax incentives for businesses that Republicans want, they'd be willing to bargain to say, hey, we know this is an important priority for the Democratic administration. Let's get something in exchange. But the fate of it is very unclear. And you never want to be too confident that something will happen, especially when it comes to the United States Congress, which is, as everybody knows, quite dysfunctional. And just as one last note, uh, as I mentioned, obviously, this is kind of a new monthly payment system for this, but families can opt out of that and just receive it as the lump sum at the end of the year if they choose to, uh, so they can have it in the regular tax stuff? Yeah, IRS officials told reporters this weekend that they are planning on setting up a portal, online portal, so if you want to, you can go into that system and change your benefit allocation. We'll see. I guess it's very possible that they get that up running smoothly, but these kinds of things often tend to be kludgy and kind of difficult to make work, and we'll see how easy it is for families really to do that. Jeff Stein, White House economics reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. This week, we're also seeing some good numbers for the travel industry. Everyone is expecting the summer travel season to be that comeback moment for airlines and the hospitality industry, but signs are showing that it may be already happening. TSA airport screenings are up 715% compared to the same time last year. And if you're planning to fly, you might want to get your tickets soon. Prices are already creeping back up to pre-pandemic levels. We'll also tell you the total amount of fines that the Federal Aviation Administration has proposed for 18 passengers for their disruptive behavior. A lot of it had to do with masks, and a lot of it had to do with alcohol. For more on how the surge is already here, we'll speak to Scott McCartney, middle seat columnist at the Wall Street Journal. TSA tracks the number of people going through checkpoints, and it it really uh, gives you a pretty good idea of how many people are traveling. And I was really struck by the contrast between the two, a, a 715% increase in one year, first half of May compared to first half of May of, of 2020, really shows you what's happening with the recovery. At the same time, the negative 35%, that's the number of screenings this year compared to the same period of May of 2019. So pre-pandemic, and we're still 35% down And I think that's a pretty good indicator. Um, There are many restrictions on international travel. So there are really only a few places that people are going internationally right now. That's starting to loosen up itself. But you take out all that international travel, 
And you also take out business travel. Uh, There's only about 25 or 30 percent of the normal load of business travel. So that's down significantly. And even with all that, to only be 35 percent below 2019, I think is remarkable. It shows you in a different way the same thing, that there is this leisure travel surge going on that's really quite remarkable and I think has uh, has caught airlines and everybody else off guard. Right. We've talked about business travel a lot, and that's kind of the other component for these airlines that they're hoping to get back up. That's the rebound that they need to kind of start squaring off a lot of things. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have to get there a little bit later. $408. That's the average round-trip ticket sold through early May for summer travel. The tickets are starting to creep back up and get expensive again. Yeah, very much. Um, you know, $408, that's only $18 cheaper than the same period of 2019, two years ago. So in terms of prices, we are back to normal. And actually, those prices are really sort of surging um, themselves. Uh, they were tickets for summer travel, and it's, it's memor- what we looked at was Memorial Day to Labor Day. Tickets for travel in that period, they were a whole lot cheaper if you bought them last year in, in November, December, took a chance that we'd be able to travel uh, this summer and bought tickets. That worked out for people. Uh, people who are buying now, they're going to be paying a whole lot more. And so I think, you know, people sort of went into um, the recovery thinking, oh, uh, travel's down, it's going to be cheap. Guess again, because uh, prices really are leading the comeback. Okay, this is a little kind of a fun one. $326,500. That's the total amount of fines that the FAA has proposed for 18 passengers only, only 18 passengers for their disruptive behavior. A lot of this had to do with masks being mentioned as a trigger for a lot of arguments. Alcohol was a factor in a lot of these other things. But these are the people that are getting fined for being unruly on the flights. Yeah, and I put this in because that 326500 is such a big number. It was really struck. The FAA is trying to be very serious about disruptive behavior on board airplanes. So the fines they're issuing are really huge, um, averaging more than $18,000 per person. They're higher if assaults were involved uh, with flight attendants. The highest one was actually a proposed fine of more than 52000 against a Delta passenger who not only hit a flight attendant twice in the face, once after escaping plastic handcuffs, but also tried to open the cockpit door. Obviously a major, major no-no, but there were fines, uh, you know, $30,000. If you hit a flight attendant, you were in the $30,000 range. And if you weren't, uh, you know, I think the moral of the story is that masks and alcohol for some people are a really bad combination. Right, exactly. Okay, for international travel, we mentioned it a little bit, negative 76%. That's what we're seeing in international travel, except for beach destinations like Mexico and the Caribbean. And then other just big winners, I think you had 438%. That was the increase of seats that were flying to Dutch Harbor, Alaska. Other big winners in all this are Florida, a lot of destinations in Florida, San Francisco, a big loser in uh, flights going out there. The small airports are kind of fun, right? There weren't many seats going into Dutch Harbor, Alaska before. So, yes, the number of seats is up 438%. Um, It's not a lot of seats. But a whole lot more seats going into Bozeman, Montana or Sarasota, Florida, as you say. You know, what was interesting, what jumped out at me was among big airports, Miami is is a significant winner. And the number of seats in the June schedule compared to June 2019, so again, a two-year comparison going back pre-pandemic, 
number of seats in Miami up 35%. Miami was a big hub to begin with, and to think that it's a third bigger already is really extraordinary. Now, so a lot of that, I think, reflects the popularity of Florida, but also connections into the Caribbean and, and even South America, Central America. It's just interesting, I think, to see airports that are already busier than they were before the pandemic. Right. Yeah, that surges here. If you're planning on doing any type of traveling, start planning it now and start buying those tickets because it's just going to get uh, it's just going to keep going up at, uh, on that front. Scott McCartney, middle seat columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. I love a good dog story. So here's one about how they might be the next COVID test you take. A growing body of research is showing that dogs can sniff out COVID-19, including people without symptoms. These dogs can be trained relatively quickly and have pretty good success rates. Sometimes they do better than rapid antigen tests. This is leading to some companies and countries to get ready to deploy these pups to help screen large amounts of people quickly for things like sporting events, maybe at the airport. On average, one dog can screen about 250 to 300 people a day. For more on how dogs can detect the coronavirus, we'll speak to Ruth Bender, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. A lot of work has been done on this basically since the start of the pandemic. Several researchers, scientists, but also dog trainers, private companies that have done trials and scientific studies. And all of them have found really strong evidence to suggest that the dogs can very reliably detect COVID-19 in humans. There's a, a, the WHO is now coordinating an international group of researchers to advance on this subject. It has over 40 participants already, and they regularly exchange their latest findings to advance faster on actually being able to deploy the dogs around the world. So uh, different countries are in different stages. The, the Emirates has been putting a lot of money um, into this very early, and they're already using the dogs very broadly, police, but also at borders, at malls, at, you know, they have these mobile units that go to crowded living facilities to kind of do an early screening of people and try to really quickly seek out the infected people in clusters and then do additional testing on them. In Europe, they're still testing and there's some trials going on, but a little more hesitant. And in the US, we've seen a lot of private companies now using dogs for events as public life gradually resumes. Yeah, we all know that dogs have excellent smelling. They have 300 million scent receptors compared to humans have just about roughly 5 million there. So when these dogs are sniffing out for this, they're sniffing out for sensitivity and specificity. I guess that's how they judge how well they're doing it. So give us some of those numbers. How well are dogs capable of sniffing this out? The numbers vary slightly, but overall, the sensitivity, especially, so the capacity of detecting an infection correctly is sort of between mid, sort of 82% up to almost 100%. So a lot of individual trials have come out at around 95%, which is pretty high. And according to some research we've seen, could be higher than some of the antigen rapid tests out there. That's at least what researchers believe that they can detect it more reliably because they are probably able to also detect the virus possibly earlier in the stage of infection 
than some of these other tests. Right. So there's still some things that need to be defined and, and verified in, in further studies, they say, but the evidence so far is very strong to suggest that they could be super accurate and super fast. Yeah, one of the dogs you mentioned in the story, I think her name is Buffy, she was able to sniff somebody out who had tested negative at the moment, but later came down with it. So kind of getting that scent even before the tests were even able to capture it. So that, I mean, that's just pretty amazing. And tell us a little bit more about Buffy, because you did talk about her in the piece a little bit. That particular case you mentioned, I think, was actually at one of the other companies. The hospital that's using her in Florida started training her a couple of months ago. She was just a regular dog, and the dog kind of started testing her to sense general smells, odors, and then trained her for a couple of months specifically on COVID-19. And there again, their results, you know, there's no scientific study behind it, but their individual trials showed a, a sensitivity of 95%, and that convinced the hospital CEO to give it a try and hire her. <laughs> so she's around three days a week, and she's at the door. She's with a dog handler, and it's all voluntary. You know, the people who don't like dogs or afraid of them and don't want um, to participate, they don't have to. Right. But basically, she comes and sniffs the shoes, and if she detects a sense that she uh, identifies as COVID positive, then she sits down and she gets a treat <laughs> and the person's then asked to take an additional test. Yeah. And so she's become also kind of a mascot of the hospital. The CEO told me, you know, everybody kind of likes her and she's helped staff and, and visitors again, feel a little more comfortable going into a hospital, which for a long time was something very daunting, right? Yeah, I mean, I love it. I love dog stories. So all this sounds very cute to me to see her actually doing her work and everything. But as you mentioned, you know, a lot of places, well, it's not like a specifically sanctioned thing, these sniffer dogs. A lot of companies and governments are looking forward to using it just because of the speed. I mean, you know, these dogs can kind of sniff out 200 to 300 people in a sitting versus, you know, taking the time to do the nasal swabs and, and, and all that. So the time element is really important with this. Yes, exactly. And I mean, there are still unanswered questions and, you know, governments want to make sure that there's no false results that could be misleading before they really roll it out. So uh, that's why researchers are saying there's still some more testing that needs to be done. But generally, they see this as, as potentially a really effective additional testing method. It's not supposed to replace all the tests we know these days, you know, nasal swabs, uh, rapid antigen, or over whether it's lab-based testing, but, you know, it could serve as a very quick and efficient and cheap way to screen large crowds of people right. when people return to the movies, when people return to the malls, when people return to concerts. And then when there is a positive case, you can always verify that with additional testing but you can't do that with 200 people at the same time. Right. Yeah. I think that's a very important distinction right there. This is in addition to all the other safety precautions. And when you're doing things like sporting events, uh, airports, all that with the large volumes of people, this could help out a lot. Ruth Bender, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.